Tonight's the eighth talk in the series, uh, and this was this talk is on um, right samadhi, right or wise samadhi, and it's the summation of the eightfold path. I think it's important to realize that uh, the eightfold path um, was one was at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. If you if you think of it. Um, it's the first sermon he gave was were the four, four noble truths, and the eightfold path, of course, is the fourth of that um, noble truth, the fourth of the noble truths, and then the last sermon he gave uh, was also he also contained within it the eightfold path. So he thought it was good enough to come in and go out with, and obviously. Um, there must be an enormous depth and subtlety to it. And my feeling is over the years that uh, not enough attention has been paid to the subtlety of it. And that most of the ways that I've heard it as a student and in my reading has been in a very kind of linear approach, uh, much like the Ten Commandments in some ways. Do this and do that and don't do that. Make sure you do this and always do that. And uh, left me sort of feeling um, uncomfortable. And I, I hope that this series together, we begin to understand that it's much more intricate than that, much more subtle than that. And uh, the image that I, I think really um, says it to me is if we look at a circle, a circle is uniform and continuous. There are no breaks. And yet any point on the circumference of the circle therefore embraces all the points. There's no hierarchy in the sense that one is better than or leads to, but that all points, as it, if, uh, if you establish um, a diameter through that circle, goes through the center. No matter where you are on the circumference, draw a line a diameter through from that point across, you'll go through the center. And therefore, all points on this eightfold path go through the center of the first step, which is right view. But they all are interconnected, and they all feed upon one another, not as isolating or discrete steps, but rather as different perceptions of the circle, from different perceptions in the circle. And so we come finally to the last step. And I hope you'll understand by the end of tonight how the last step is really the first step on this uh, path. But before I get to that, I, someone last week uh, brought a couple of um, quotes that I thought were really good and sort of emphasize um, the scientific perceptions of this uniform universe. A couple of quotes by Albert Einstein. On such things as matter, we have been all wrong, he said. What we have hitherto called matter is energy, energy whose vibration has been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. 
But we get lost in a lot of matter, don't we? We get lost in matter. I mean, matter is what fills our life. Matter is what is important to most of us. It matters most. And I think it's energy. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's energy. And another perception of it, when we free it up from its isolated perspective, it's a part of the very fabric of our aliveness, of the energies that feed each other. And then Einstein goes on into a more familiar quote, a human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He or she experiences thought and feelings as separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few people nearest to us. Our task must be to widen our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures. So there, in the same uh, quote, is the sense of uniformality, of wholeness, of right view. And at the same time, out of that right view, Einstein uh, embraces compassion or love or the action, the intention, the vitality of, of wholeness. And I, I, I read those because uh, it's now being perceived by many different uh, facets of society, many different expressions and traditions. And science itself is leading towards that understanding. So there's really something we're going towards here. This isn't uh, analytical. It's not hypothetical. It's not um, even intellectual, really. It's something much more basic than that. And we keep losing ourselves from seeing that wholeness because we keep condensing the energy down into the forms and expressions in which the energy takes, rather than freeing ourselves up to see the wholeness free from the isolated particulars of the universe. Now, I think the Buddha understood that problem very well. And so he listed a series of steps, which are really mind trainings. It's a mind training. He recognizes the problem. Some traditions, like the Aveda Vedantic tradition, don't recognize the problem. They just say it's all illusion. Forget that you have a problem. You're whole and you're complete. Get on with your completion. And that'd be fine. And it, someone might say, well, just remember you're complete. And, uh, and that'll be enough. And if we tried that method, surely five seconds of the day we would remember. And the rest of the time we would be in doing what we usually do, acting from our separation of our, our forgetfulness and from wrong view. And so the Buddha offered us a way, a system, a mechanism, a tool for us to actually begin to integrate into ourselves right view. And so the last three steps that we have undertaken in this Eightfold Path have been that training. 
The first is just the effort, just the willingness to not only hold the view conceptually, because in the beginning it's just an idea. Yeah, yeah you're all one, great. Now give me back my... <laughs> and it's just an idea. It doesn't really affect us. It doesn't act upon us. It doesn't act through us. It's a nice idea. And a lot of New Age stuff comes out of that. You know, it's a pretty idea. I, went, I was at a conference a few years ago called the Mind, Body, and Soul. And uh, there were 2,000 people there. And uh, I, I saw that what was being done in the course of that two-day conference was really just talking about the idea. There wasn't any substance to, or, that I could feel. But people need to know about the idea. So those 2,000 people gathered and had a variety of different voices telling them about right view. But I'm, I would be very um, skeptical if, if any of them actually changed from that conference. So we need something. We've heard the idea, right? Now we have, to, we have to really move with it. We have to integrate the idea. And so the Buddha looks at our entire lives, and he says, OK, all your actions, all your speech, all your livelihood has to contain the integration of this idea. And now I'm going to give you a method for you to be able to pull that out of yourself, to be able to see it for yourself, to be able to look and to actually perceive that sense of unification, of wholeness, of oneness of things. And so the last three steps are the mind training that is so important for this process of integration. The first, as we mentioned, was the effort that's needed to, just to establish contact with things. Because the usual normal way that we act is to break off contact. It's to like something and not like something. When you like something, you hold on to the contact and squeeze the life out of it. When you don't like something, you break off the contact to it. So it's like we are strobe lights. You know, you, we flash. Our aliveness flashes momentarily towards something we like. And then we lose ourselves, and the flight goes out in what we do like. And if we don't like, we never touch it at all. So it's just this big blank space. So we're, we're strobe lights that come on about, there's like one minute of flash and five minutes of interval. <laughs> we haven't yet come alive here. So we have to figure out a way to maintain contact. If we're whole, if the truth is being shouted at us and we begin to realize that there's some validity to it, then we have to hold that contact. And so the very things that drive us from that contact, that tend to separate us away from that contact, we have to use through our effort to reestablish it, to reestablish contact. OK, now wait a minute. Anger is not going to drive me. Well, let me just figure this out. Let me just stay in contact here. Let me just stay in touch. You see? Fear is not going to send me packing. And if you practice that, you begin to use those as cues to approach life. Very interesting to approach life in that way. In fact, I now sometimes I'll watch a horror flick. <laughs> and there'll be this monster or something. And everybody's running from it. And I'm going, why are they running? <laughs> what is this mummy? <laughs> what is this Dracula? I mean, all he can do is kill you, right? That's it. That's what he can do to you. 
So what difference does it make? <laughs> it's a heart attack. It's a mommy. Who cares? <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so we establish mindfulness. Mindfulness is the effort to make contact. You see, in the moment of mindfulness, we have made contact. Our awareness, aliveness touches aliveness. We have made contact with something. Internally, we've made contact with our emotions, with our feelings, with whatever it is that's coming up. Externally, we make contact with whatever it is that we want to break off contact from. The neighbor with the barking dog, the boss that gives us too much work, the whoever. And so our internal and external strategy, planning, is to remain in contact. OK, so that's how mindfulness works. Mindfulness maintains and reminds us that we're whole. Oh, yeah, come on. OK, so you're aware. Okay. Now, where does samadhi come in? And why is samadhi the last step, you see? You've got to ask these questions. Why not in the middle, between action and speech? Why at the end? And why the last step? Shouldn't mindfulness be the last step? I love this, you see. You go right and say, what, what, what is this? why is this like this? Well, I would like to go back to an old metaphor, if I can. <laughs> <laughs> For purpose of the tape, I picked up a flashlight. The people in the room know that. OK, but I want to show why samadhi is such an important aspect of the teaching. So we turn on the light in our consciousness. And just again to uh, remind people, the metaphor is that the room is our mind and that the flashlight is the light of our attention or mindfulness, being aware of something. And we start out in the meditation and turn on the light. And we begin to look around the room and search it out. Now, we have to understand that samadhi is different than concentration. They're often, uh, those terms are often confused. What we are doing when we are lighting up the light of our attention and placing it on something is for a moment we're, we're, we're developing uh, the ability to concentrate on something or to sustain our attention or focus on something. Now when everything is dark and we only have a little light, then we're going to go look at a piecemeal points of view, what's going on here. Let me look at my anger. Let me look at my impatience. Let me look at my breath. Let me look at the pain in my knee. Let me search this room out. Now, when we first get in it, we all realize that the motion of our problem is, I mean, it's, it's turbulent. And the light can't establish attention on anything. So we have to, we have to effort. We have to put forth effort to establish mindfulness and concentration, sustained attention on an object to see what that object is. The point is to see what it is, to make contact with it. Remember the word contact. Remember the word wholeness is made through contact. We can't break off contact and be whole. You can't break off contact with anything and be whole. So it's important to understand and to make contact with this entire room of the mind. But if we're honest with ourselves, the reason that we pick out and select individual things is because, and we want to watch them, is because we don't really have a very um, adjusted relationship to them. We don't feel very comfortable with these different qualities of mind. And they 
scare us, to be honest. Our moods, our emotions, our perceptions, they frighten us. And our anger is there, and we sort of hold off our anger at arm's length with our attention to sort of look at it to make sure that it's okay to let in. And this is, all, this is an important process, and this is how our mindfulness works. And this is the ability of the mind to uh, single, uh, one-pointed quality of the mind that singles out a, one characteristic of the mind and establishes attention upon it. Very important. And it takes a lot of effort to keep bringing the mind back. Now, the important thing is that after we have done that to the entire room of all the different mental states that arise, and we have at least a passing familiarity with everything in this room, we relax a little bit. And as we relax, something very interesting happens. The room, the space of our one-pointedness begins to broaden, broaden out especially when we're no longer chasing thought everywhere. And for the most part, our early training is just finding the difference between thought and making contact with the experience of life. Because if there's wholeness, it can't be through thought. Because all thought does is particularize something away from the whole, it particularizes something, and makes energy matter from energy. Right? That's what thought does. Thought particularizes the field of our experience. I hope this isn't too technical, but I have to go into this for you to get a sense of where samadhi comes in. So we learn that if we're going to be whole, it can't be through running after our thinking. Our thinking just goes, it doesn't, if we follow our thought, we'll lead, our, our life will be led from a sense of separation and distance and, and that. But when we make experience contact with something, when we contact the experience of what it is, then we drop the thinking and we relax around it a little more and more often. And this is where samadhi comes in. Now there are two types of, of, the, of sustained attention. One type is single-pointed concentration, which I was just talking about, the ability to particular and focus on one object of the mind. The second is moment-to-moment -moment samadhi. And the analogy of the difference is that if you're at a street corner and you watch the cars go by and you're watching each individual car as it goes by the street corner, your, your head is moving with each car as it goes by. Buick, Cadillac, Mercedes, <laughs> Honda. That's one way to do it. Now, when you get comfortable that what's going by isn't going to run into you, isn't going to cause you trouble, isn't going to be a problem for you, then you can hold your gaze steady. And therefore, just look out and hold your gaze steady and, steady, and you'll catch every single car that goes by, and your heart, mind won't move along with it. Right? If you're looking out the street corner, then you see all the cars passing in front, and you're not moving with each individual car. This is samadhi. Samadhi from ch fo focusing in on each car, the evolution of that over time is that the mind gets very steady. When it gets steady, 
there's a kind of a oneness of mind, mental harmony, where the mind isn't moving, jarring itself with each passing fear, impatience, problem. It's rather just, it's now comfortable enough with all of the different pieces, mind states of the room, where it can just focus its steady gaze. And an interesting thing happens. All the lights come on in the room. The room is no longer dark because it was only dark when we were chasing each individual object with our light. The darkness was the movement from one thing to another. When our mind is not moving, when we are focused in a steady gaze, then 360 degrees our mind lights up. Now that's a very different kind of steadiness than what most of us are used to. But within that steadiness, everything is seen. Everything is seen. Everything is just as it is. Remember, this practice is about seeing things the way they are. And in that steadiness of mind, oneness of mind, these are metaphor, um, uh, uh, similes for the same oneness of mind, steadiness of mind, mental harmony. When we are steady in our gaze and everything is seen just as it is, there's also mindfulness. There's also awareness, is there not? There's also awareness. Therefore, samadhi contains mindfulness. As long as I was just jerking my mind back to this object, mindfulness was leading the samadhi. Back to my breath. Be present with my breath. Focus on, okay, now I can sustain my attention on my breath. So mindfulness was leading samadhi. But when we are aware of the whole room, the steadiness itself being the samadhi, then everything is seen. And mindfulness is part of what is present in that room, along with relaxation, tranquility, peace, quiet. And you know what happens when you see the whole of the room undivided? It's that the whole of life is undivided. And therefore, samadhi is also wise view and holds wise view within it. You see how beautiful this is? You see how it's like this Beethoven symphony that has the culmination of, of the circle coming back in on itself. We start with wise view as an idea and we come back to the actual experience of the wholeness of life contained within the space of the mind. A, a very important component of this experience is relaxation. One of the reasons that metta has taken off so well in this culture, unlike in the East, it's not even, it's not very well practiced and it's not very well understood and it's not embraced very well, is because we have a culture that desperately needs something to offset 
a huge hindrance, which is our self-dislike, our inadequacy, our unworthiness. And metta balances that out with some relaxation. It allows us to relax to this idea we have in the mind about who we are. And when we relax with the idea, we come into a, or we can, we begin to come into a quieter and quieter space of the mind. Now, relaxation is essential to quietness, to samadhi. Because if there's nervousness, if there's tension, if there's discontent, then it's just agitation of the flashlight in the room. But with relaxation, there is a falling into, a steadiness that comes out of that. I was, um, for, I spent several years um, practicing uh, concentration, focusing on my breath, doing things that were very um, unorthodox, like closing myself in closets and just and with a with a very strong uh, determination and uh, overpowering drive to establish this strength, this concentration. Now I'm talking about concentration practice now. What concentration, merely sustaining your attention, does not provide is clarity. It doesn't allow you to see the motivation for why you're doing the concentration practice. You just do it. And at that point, the teachers weren't much clearer than we were. They were just out of five or 10 years out of their own practice. And they taught concentration as a very uh, forceful and um, hard uh, uh, effort. And I remember sitting in a three-month course and one of the teachers coming around and yelling at us to get back to the breath. And it was, it was rather. Um, and that, so I spent a number of years like that. And there's this kind of tension in my practice, I remember, as I carried that tension into my forced concentration practice. And my mind wasn't very concentrated because of all that tension. And then a, another teacher who had practiced in a different way uh, told me about relaxation and that samadhi is built upon relaxation. So my steadiness of mind has to be built upon mental ease. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? You can just feel it. Feel the words. The lack of tension, contentment, tranquility. There has to be at the base of, of our activity or nothing, is, nothing can be held. Everything is shaken. So when he mentioned that, he also mentioned a way to do that for me, which involved the kind of metta phrases to myself, which allowed me to settle down and relax, which allowed me to get to the source of the motivation of dislike that had been propelling my concentration practice up until that point. And then very quickly, things changed. Now, the way I'm teaching the meditation is for you, when you leave your breath into thought, not to come right back to your breath, but to go to the body's sense of relaxation first. And to allow yourself to dissipate any attitudes that may be accompanying your inability to sustain your attention. And if you go through that sense of relaxation, that will dissipate those attitudes. Just into the, when you relax, the attitude dissipates with a sense of calmness. And then you let the breath merge out of that sense of relaxation. You see? And from that, 
that's the most direct route to samadhi from concentration. Not forced effort, not willful intention, not driving and belittling and hurtling yourself into the activity, but a quiet, reserved contentment that can only be found when the mind and body are relaxed, are quiet in themselves. This is why I think it's so important for Westerners in particular, but for most people in general, to have at the base of their practice that sense of relaxation. We are not going anywhere here. We are establishing certain conditions within the room of our mind to be able to see. We want to see what is at the heart and base and fundamental fund foundation of life as it is. If we are driven towards creating some other kind of room, we'll never get to know the truth of this room. If we are forcing ourselves to be devotional at the feet of some master because we want to follow this wise person around the world, we'll never get to know the source of our own contentment, of our own spirituality, of our own wisdom. And so we come back into the room, establish the conditions from this space that will allow us to get to know this space with ease and relaxation. And in through that, through our determination to get to know it, which is a difficult effort to establish, for years in your practice, you will find the fleeing mentality still persisting. I got to get out of here. Got to get away from this. Or the blaming mentality. It's not my problem, it's yours. Very quickly, because at the base of what we've learned our lives to be has been to point outside of the room towards somebody else's problem as being our own, rather than taking responsibility here and now. But how else can we brighten this room with a lamp of awareness, except by taking full responsibility, turning towards and connecting once again, sustaining our attention through relaxation, and then letting the whole field of our experience, the whole inward chamber of our mind, light become light itself through that connectedness. Just to read this, I thought it caught it pretty well here. There is such a thing as taking ourselves in the world too seriously, or at any rate, too anxiously. Half of the secular unrest and dismal profane sadness of modern society comes from the vain idea that every person is bound to be a critic of life and to let no day pass without finding some fault with the general order of things or projecting some plan for its general improvement. And the other half comes from the greedy notion that a man's life does consist, after all, in the abundance of thing that, things that he possesses and that it is somehow or other more respectable and pious to be always at work trying to make a larger living than it is to lie on your back in the green pastures beside the still waters and thank God you are alive. <laughs> So we're back home 
We've come back. We've come all the way through it now. And we've come back, as T.S. Eliot, I believe, said, and we begin to know it for the first time. Now we can go, there's two directions that we can take. And that choice, that bifurcation of the path is there at every step we take, every single one. We can keep condensing energy into matter, pretending that the world is multiple, is particular and separate, and that is the way of the self. Because your existence as a separate self depends upon condensing matter from energy. And then there is the way of truth, the way of wholeness, of oneness, of the Eightfold Path. And that is to use the ways and tendencies of the self that lead toward separation as investigation, as ways to look and to intrude and to understand and to investigate, to understand what that separation is about and to pierce that sense of two-ness. And sometimes they get very blurred. Sometimes we put forth effort to get rid of the self. But the point is not to get rid of the self. It's to understand the self as part of this room. We can only do that through the ability to hold the room steady in samadhi so that we can see what is here. And to see the self as another phantom-like thought that passes through but has no sense of entity or separation in and of itself, no sense of solidity in and of itself. This, the paradox of the path is that we come back home to what is true and natural. The difficulty of the path is contained in this, these stanzas by Kabir. Friends, please tell me what I can do about this world. I hold to it and it keeps spinning out. I gave my sewn clothes, I gave up my sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still threw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longing and now I discovered that I get angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I am greedy all day. I work hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> when the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. But that one thing need not deter us. That one thing need not be a problem. If we see it, it's just part of the whole. Not something to negate or to disturb us. Not something to turn away from. Not something to take even seriously. But just to see ourselves for what they are. It begins to dawn on us 
that our emotional response need not determine the clarity of the room. And we may be talking or speaking with someone and have this anxiety or this fear or just this aversion. And yet the steadiness of the gaze sees that for just what it is, it just comes through. But because the space is so much greater than that fleeting cloud that passed through it, nothing is broken. Contact is never broken. And when nothing is broken, then true intimacy, even between myself, the sense of myself, and the sense of someone else who I don't like, who I wish would be out, of the area, out of my sight, is not broken. And so my likes and dislikes and nowhere are affected through the steadiness, the samadhi, the wholeness of the room. Now for some of you this talk is just more abstract. For some of us the practice hasn't developed sufficiently to be able to get an intimation of what I'm speaking about. But I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. This is the truth. And the practice will take you there with sincerity. It's just a matter of putting forth the effort and looking at the eightfold way and saying, yeah, I'm going to walk towards what science is telling me now, towards what the traditions are calling forth in their philosophies. I'm going to walk this thing and just walk into the path of wholeness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.